Do you want to come and grab your seat? If you've got a Bible, could you go to Joshua chapter 11? We're continuing our progress through the book of Joshua, and we'll be getting to there um, very soon and reading um, God's Word to us. But before we go that back there, I need to just share some stuff with you. I've had a bit of a, a difficult week, um, which started on Sunday. Um, Sunday evening... Very late at night, I joined a few friends and we watched um, some television. We watched the Super Bowl. Um, And if you know anything about uh, me, you know that I'm a fan of American football. I love it. It's the greatest game on God's earth as far as I am concerned. I used to play. I've followed it for over 30 years now. And last night, we had, uh, last Sunday was the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is the final, it is the, it is the pinnacle of the season. It's the one game that every team is trying to get to. And it's this vast spectacular, if you know, the, the television audience for the Super Bowl game runs into the hundreds of millions of people who tune in just to watch this one match. If you want to put an advert on during the game, it costs millions of dollars for a 30-second slot and then the millions of dollars are paid to produce that advert that then goes into the 30 seconds. So it's astronomical. The, um, they have a halftime show, which is a great spec- spectacle. Uh, this year was Justin Timberlake, which you can imagine was as bad as it sounds. But it, there he was in the middle of, of the game. But back to the game. Now, my team were in the final, which is great as a supporter. My team made it. They were the defending champions. They were the overwhelming favorites to win. They have the greatest quarterback of all time, the greatest coach of all time, and a dominant team. And they lost. Badly. Um, Depressingly so. And so all this great expectation, this excitement, were beaten. They were beaten by the underdogs, the other team, the team who shouldn't have won, the team who shouldn't have been there, the team who were outclassed. They were playing with a backup quarterback who shouldn't have even been playing because their proper one got injured earlier in the year. And so they shouldn't have made it there, but they did and they won. And there was a final showdown in that um, game in Minneapolis between the top team that should have won and the underdogs, but the underdogs came out on top. And what we're going to look at today, there is a link to Joshua, is we're going to look at a final showdown in the battle for Canaan. And we're going to see on one side an, a team with overwhelming superiority in so many ways against a team that on the surface should look like they should lose. But because God is involved, it never quite goes according to worldly wisdom. Now, if you've been following us through Joshua, we've had the first five chapters, which were the preparation phase of the people of God entering the land of Canaan, which God had promised to them via Abraham like 400 plus years before. They're now entering the land. They're now in the process of taking the land. We've had significant battles at Jericho and Ai. And they've had times where they've defeated many of the enemies. And we're now reaching the end of this sort of section. Next week, chapter 12, we'll round out this section and we'll go into kind of the inheritance section of the book. And so that's what we're looking at today. So big idea of today's message is God's enemies will be defeated and Jesus will have the final victory. 
God's enemies will be defeated and Jesus will have the final victory. We saw last week in chapter 10, there was a coalition of enemy forces from the south of the area of Canaan that had come to oppose Israel. God, by his grace, had delivered Israel and given them victory over that. But what happens as a result of that is the rest of Canaan suddenly come out in opposition. And we're going to read the first part of um, chapter 11. So can you put it up for me, Matt? And we will read it out. Okay, it says, When Jaban, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and the king of Ashkshaf, and the kings are in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowlands, and in Napoth-dor, my goodness, these names, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So first of all, what we've got here is God's enemies. Now this chapter starts identically to the previous chapter where there is a coalition of forces coming against the people of God, Israel. And you see this one character, King Jabon of Hazor, who he's named because he was the most powerful king in the most powerful city in the northern territory of the land. And it goes on to name four kings, he is one of them, plus six nations, people groups, Um, who form this coalition and the area that it lists there, all those funny names, is a huge area in the land. And they've all come out against Israel. This is a much larger force than Israel had faced in the previous chapter. And the wide area, the wide geographical area shown kind of gives gives kind of um, emphasis to this. And if you look... What they find, Israel find themselves up against, they find themselves up against a foe who is numerically superior and also technologically superior. And if we think about in our day and age, if you're going to fight a battle against a numerically superior foe who've got technological advances over you, you aren't going to win. It's just not the way it works. They've got more people and they've got better weapons and armaments and all the other bits that go with it. Because it says, he loses this language, Verse 4, when he talks about they came out with all their troops, a great horde in a number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. This was huge. This army arrayed against God people contained thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers and cavalry and chariots. It was a mighty force. And also we see in there their technological advances. They had cavalry and chariots. Israel, back in the book of Deuteronomy, has been specifically told not to invest in that kind of military units. God actually said, no, you're not going to have them because I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to be on your side. You don't need them. And he's basically saying to them, you are not going to rely on the weapons of this world to win your battles. You're going to rely on me to do it. So these guys are coming out with weapons of warfare that Israel don't even have. How do they counter them? What do they do with them? So they are superior from a point of technology against them. Cavalry and chariots are good in combat against foot soldiers because they can ride away, shoot them with arrows, all sorts of things. Much better. Israel don't have them. So they're facing this vast enemy force. 
And what we have here is basically a picture of the opposition of the world against God and his people. Because the opposition is total. It's all these people, all these people groups, all these kings. It is massive in terms of its kind of array. It's different things involved in the armies against him. And if you even read it, you also see the echo there coming against God's purposes of the enemy, the devil, behind it. Because what's it say in chapter 4? How does it describe the enemy? Like the sand that is on the seashore. What does that remind you of? God's promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham, he said, I will multiply you. You've got no kids, you're old, you can't even have kids because your wife's barren, you're, just, you're way past it. But he said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to multiply your descendants like the sand on the seashore. And what we have here, if we have the opposition of the world coming almost with an anti-promise, the enemies against God's people, the enemy against Joshua and Israel is like that. There are so many of them. You can't even number them. They must have been arrayed out on the plains before them. And you can't even see the end of the line of troops. They just keep going back and back. And over here there's cavalry. And over there there's chariots. There is a complete opposition against God and his purposes, which is shown here against, by the people of Canaan against God. And it shows explicit opposition. It shows... Um, a relentless opposition. There's no middle ground here. There's no Switzerland in this. There are forces arrayed against God's people and there are God's people. And there's nothing in between. You're either on one side or you're on the other. And the forces that are arrayed against God's people are massive, intimidating, fearful to look at. But then we, let's carry on with the text and see how God responds. So can we have the next one up for me, Matt? Oh, we have. Look at you ahead of me. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misphareth Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Misphar. And they struck them till left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Second thing we're going to see here is God's assurance. What did God say to Joshua? Do not be afraid. Does that sound familiar? For those of you who are keeping score, as far as I can tell, that is the seventh time in the book of Joshua that God has said that to him. Do not be afraid. It must have been terrifying to see the, the array of kind of the world against them, this military force coming before them. And God says the same thing again to his people, to his leader. He says, don't be afraid. What does he say to them? Immediately after that, he says, I will give them over. That's God speaking. God, I'm going to give them over to you. The same promise he has made all the way through the book, I will fight for you. I will the one who will give them over. You don't have to worry about how you're going to do the victory in your own strength because I'm God and I'm going to choose who wins and who loses. And he promises to Joshua that day total defeat of their enemy. Complete victory. He says you are just going to rout them. 
You're going to wipe them out. It doesn't matter how big they are, they're going to fall hard before you. They're not going to stand against God and his purposes. And we even say, even says at the end there, he says, I'm, you're going to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. They think they've got better weapons than you. They think they're smarter than you. They think they've got the, the better guns, the better bombs, whatever it is. You're going to hamstring the horses so they are useless. You're going to burn the chariots so they are ash. It's all going to come to nothing before me. And then we have the battle. The battle has got no details as such. It just says Joshua turned up and started to fight the enemy. So obviously Israel played a part, but the emphasis is on God's hand in it. It says the Lord gave them over in verse 8. So the battle is meant and the Lord gave them over. The Lord had decided who would have the victory, what would happen to those people. And Joshua and his forces won the victory. The places named there, interestingly, are in opposite directions. One is on the east, one is on the west. So there was obviously a battle. They won the battle and the enemy was so utterly defeated, so utterly routed that they fled in opposite directions. Went to the east, they went to the west. They, were just, they could not stand before God's forces and they were utterly destroyed as a result. And as we see at the end there, Joshua follows God's words to the letter. The wording is actually identical from the first verse to the last verse in that section where he basically says he did everything God says. He hamstrung the horses, he burnt the chariots. Their power was reduced to nothing. They were utterly and totally defeated. And what we have here is a picture of worldly wisdom. We have a picture of worldly wisdom, worldly authority, worldly opposition being raided against God's people. And what does it come to? Absolutely nothing. doesn't matter how big you are, how smart you are, what you think you know. Ultimately, if you stand before God, you will be defeated. God's plans and God's purposes cannot be defeated. It doesn't matter how big the enemy looks. It doesn't matter how scary they look. It doesn't matter how overwhelming they appear. When God says, you're done, you're done. And you're defeated and you'll be driven away to the east, to the west, utterly routed, utterly defeated. And we have the final section here. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There were none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire, and all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as the Moses, a servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned, and all the spoil of these cities and livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. What we find here is an absolutely terrifying image of God's judgment. God's judgment. The enemy had been defeated in battle, and then their cities were destroyed, particularly Hazor, was destroyed, which was the lead city, kind of the center of the opposition against Israel at that time. And the completeness of the destruction of its city and king fulfills what God had spoken in Deuteronomy, how you will destroy your enemy. 
and this kind of focuses on what kind of Israel did in terms of they captured the royal cities, they captured the, and they burnt them, they captured the cities on the mounds, they took the plunder and livestock, they utterly defeated and routed their enemies. Joshua was obedient to the commands of God, the importance of following that. We've seen that as a highlight through the book of Joshua. That's what God spoke to Joshua at the beginning. Be strong and courageous in what? In following my commands, following my laws. And it's a, a terrifying, devastating picture of those who set themselves up against God. Those who choose willfully, disobediently, stubbornly to resist God and his purposes will one day come to total and complete ruin. They will come to total and complete destruction. There is no way of hiding that. There is no way of getting around that. And to contemplate that is humbling and it is sobering and it should be terrifying in one sense because God is holy and just and he must punish sin and he must punish opposition just like we all know that when things done that are wrong we know they need to get punished when we hear things in the news or things happen to us we know that perpetrators of crimes must be punished unfortunately that includes us and we know that we need to be punished we need a saviour We need someone who can do something about that terrifying situation we find ourselves in. Which brings us to this last section, which I just want to read. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowlands and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Balgad, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was a Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab and from the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Garth and Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. All right, last bit. Now, what we find in the Old Testament are certain characters who basically point us towards Jesus and they are types of Christ and Joshua is a type of Christ and what I want to look at finally is three things that it shows us and points us to Jesus how Jesus is a better Joshua and hopefully we can make a little bit of sense of what's happened in this passage before us the first thing we see is Joshua was the chosen leader In that section, we see that Joshua is highlighted as the agent, the one who does everything. He's the one who took the land. He's the one who defeated the enemies. He captured their kings. He's the one who waged war, it says, a long time for a period. So this was obviously over a period of years, maybe, this kind of campaign against uh, the enemy. He destroyed the Anakites that we'll come back to, and he took the land and distributed it at the end. Israel obviously clearly involved in this. It wasn't just Joshua wandering around. He obviously had Israel with him um, and the soldiers. But actually, he's the focus. And the 
the thing we need to learn from this is Jesus is a better Joshua. Because Jesus is God's chosen leader. Jesus is God's chosen one. He is the Messiah. He is the second Adam that has come to fulfill what the first Adam failed. To live that perfect life. To not fail in anything. To not sin. Even his enemies couldn't find anything wrong with him. And if your enemies can't say anything bad about you, you know you're doing all right. He was God's leader, not just of God's people, but actually the entire of creation. He's described as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He was both fully God and fully man. He was the only one who victory can be found in. He's the only one we can put our faith and trust in. So like Joshua acted as the leader of God's people, and he's the one that we hear written about, Jesus is the one that we should follow. Jesus is the one that we should look to. He is the only one that God has chosen as the Savior of the world. There is no one else that we can find hope and salvation in. He's the only one that we should be looking to. He's the only one that we should have our focus on. He's the only one the story should be about. This story is all about Joshua, and for us, our story should all be about Jesus. It's, he's the one we're looking to. He's the one we're focusing on. And if you try and build your life on anything else, ultimately it will fail. Ultimately it will come to nothing like we've read in the story here. If you're not a believer here, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to take seriously this message. Think about it. Weigh it up. We'd love to talk to you about it today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Turn away from living your life your way. Follow God's chosen leader. Live your life his way. And it will go well for you. The second thing we can see here is the comprehensive nature of the victory. We see in this section a summary of basically Israel took the entire land. Those places in there talk about the north of the country, the south of the country, everywhere in between. There is a campaign of victory going on from the point of view of Israel. They have victory after victory after victory, just as God has promised, taking town on town, city after city, having complete victory over the land. And we see at the end there that it was all orchestrated by God. It was God's victory completely. It says that no one made peace with Israel, with the exception of what? The, the Gibeonites that we saw in a previous chapter, I think it was chapter 9, wasn't it? We saw everyone was in total opposition to God and was stubbornly resisting him. And it has this rather strange verse in verse uh, chapter, where is it? Verse 20, anyone notice that one? For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, that's a terrifying verse. Let's just unpick that a little bit, spend a little bit of time with that. What we find here is we've got the inhabitants of Canaan who for hundreds of years had been involved in despicable evil practices, sexual immorality, the sacrifice of children, hideous things, and they had been under God's judgment as a result of their actions. And what the terrifying truth is, there comes a point when God says, if you want to resist me, I want you to come back to me. He calls you back, he says, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. But there comes a point when he just says, fine. Have it your way. And that point we come under God's judgment. 
And this reminds us of another character. Who was the other character previously in the Bible that he went through this particularly? Pharaoh in Egypt. If you read the Exodus story. It talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart towards God. No, I will not let your people go. God sends the plagues. Let my people go. No. Send another plague. Let my people go. No, it comes a point when God says, fine. God gives him over to his own desires. And the tone changes then. It says, well, God then hardens his heart because you've, you've made your bed, so to speak. You now lie in it. And what happens to Pharaoh? He, is, he leads his own people into destruction as a result. And what we have here is the outworking of that. Everyone in that, the land, with the exception of the Gibeonites, and we could also add Rahab in from chapter 2, way back, is in outright open opposition and rebellion to God. And the result of that is God says, fine. And that is truly scary. But that is what happens. There will come a day when God will say to all mankind, fine, have it your way. And you have a choice to make. Have you chosen to repent and bow the knee or have you chosen to do it your own way? And God will say, it's your choice. But you will have to face the consequences. And we have these funny kind of dilemmas where people say things like, well, there's, you know, the God of the Old Testament is different God of the New Testament, which is fine uh, unless you read the Bible. Because that's not true. Jesus is the same yesterday, today and for... Jesus spoke more about hell than heaven. He spoke plenty about God's judgment. He gave everyone plenty of warning. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. All his parables, read them. His parables are saying, do not leave it too late. Make your decision. Repent of your sin. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. And there are many who did, but there are many who don't. And what we find here is this defeated enemy stubbornly resisting God and then facing the consequences of their actions. It's not the actions of a vindictive God. It's the actions of a righteous God who has been merciful and allowed them time to repent, but they have refused. And thus they are facing the consequences of their actions. Coming back to the passage, there's one final thing on this comprehensive victory which we need to note, particularly for us today. Verse 21, why are the Anakim from the hill country particularly singled out? He's just he's going around, victory, victory, victory. But in verse 21, the Anakim, why is that? Well, for that, we need to go back to the book of Numbers. Because when the people of God left Egypt, they came to the edge of the promised land the first time. And what did Moses do? He sent out spies to go and check out the land. Ten of them came back and said, we have seen the descendants of Anak, the Anakin, and they're huge. They're massive. There is no way we can defeat them. They were afraid. They were fearful. They didn't trust God. They looked at the enemy and thought, we cannot defeat them. Two of the spies came back. One of them was called Joshua. One of them was called Caleb. We'll get to him in chapter 14. Said, yes, we can beat them. They're big, but we can beat them because God's on our side. The people believed the ten. And as a result, none of them entered the promised land. Forty years later, Joshua and Caleb are still kicking. They're now in the promised land, um, inheriting God's promise. And they come to the Anakim. And so it is particularly singled out here. 
that actually that enemy that defeated you first time round, that caused such fear and such trepidation, cannot stand before God. God will utterly defeat them, utterly destroy them. It doesn't matter what you face. It doesn't matter how fearful or how terrifying the enemy. It doesn't matter how they may have ruled over you in the past. They may have induced fear. They may have caused you to run away, cower in terror, be paralyzed. They cannot stand before God. And God will wipe them out and defeat them. And we see here that Jesus is a better Joshua because he doesn't just defeat enemies in the world He's defeated all enemies. The enemy of sin, death, the devil are all defeated by Christ. His victory is total and complete. Jeremy mentioned it last week, didn't he, about what did Joshua get his commanders to do? Put their feet on the necks of the defeated kings because for Christ, all things are under his feet. Everything, every. Every, every enemy that's come before you will be defeated by Christ. I don't know what you're facing now. What battle are you facing? What enemy has you paralyzed with fear? Is it a situation at work? Is it a betrayal in your life? Is it something you've caused yourself, kind of something you've taken upon yourself, a life-controlling issue, or something you're just involved in that got, has got you pinned down and paralyzed think there is absolutely no way out I cannot overcome this I cannot defeat this I I am just powerless against this well one yes you are but two guess what Jesus isn't Jesus isn't he can defeat anything whatever you're facing whatever is hanging over you whatever is controlling you whatever is dominating your life dominating your thought life whatever situation is coming for you he can defeat it even in the face of death, he can defeat it. Because Jesus has broken the power of death. Death doesn't, isn't actually the end. It is actually the beginning of something amazing. Now true, we play our parts. We can't take that away. We have to be men and women of faith. We have to read our Bibles. We have to pray. We have to be in community. We have to be pursuing Christ. But knowing that when we do in that, Jesus has the total victory. Last thing. He gives us peace and rest. Look at the final verse. It says, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it to an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. That verse kind of summarizes everything that's gone before in the book of Joshua. How that they've gone into land to take land and it's kind of done. They've, they've mission accomplished in one sense. At the end of these campaigns, the war is over. The land had rest. There is victory and so there is peace for all God's people. And it stands in stark contrast with what's happened in the previous chapters. Years of war and fighting and attrition, it's now all over. There is a rest coming and the people can enjoy what God has given to them. And the good, wonderful news for us is Jesus is a better Joshua. Jesus is a better Joshua because for us there is a promised rest, isn't there? There is a promised rest coming that will be eternal. It won't be temporary. It won't be able to be disturbed by things that are going on in this world. It will come and it will be with us forever. There will be a new heavens and a new earth 
and we get to enjoy and there'll be no more suffering and no more crying and no more tears because the old order has passed away. It says the nations are going to be kind of wrapped up like a dirty garment and thrown into the laundry and the new heavens and the new earth will come and we get to enjoy that. We're going to have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God, the Bible says, through Christ. We have peace with one another. All barriers that divide us, anything we can fall out over will be removed. And we can also enjoy that now. That's not just a, what do they say? Pie in the sky when you die? Steak on the plate while you wait. We can enjoy that now. We have that now. God's kingdom has broken in in your life. We can enjoy that peace and rest now. What does Psalm 23 say? Where's God going to lead us? By the still waters, isn't he? He'll restore our souls. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He'll prepare a table in front of our enemies. And we will know that peace and rest. It says in Philippians, doesn't it? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests of God. And then what? The peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. We can experience that now. We have a future rest to look forward to, but we can experience that now in life. No matter what life is throwing at you, we can experience a peace and a rest that only comes from Christ. Not from ourselves, not from our own positive thinking, but actually knowing that he is in control, that he has the victory, that he is the chosen leader. He's the one that we look to. And that's good news. We're going to pray. Do you want to stand? Can the band come up? I want to earth this in some prayer now with all all of you. There's a number of things I'd just like to pray through now with you guys and just do a little business with God. Then we're going to sing and see if God wants to say anything else to us. So, everyone just close your eyes, open your hands. First of all, I want to just talk to you today. If you're not a believer here, I just want to encourage you, implore you, beg you to take this message seriously. Take seriously the message of Christ. He is calling you today. Come to me, come to me, come to me. If you have heavy burdens, come to him. I'll give you rest, he says. I will restore your soul. You don't have to keep fighting anymore. Repent of your sins. Turn away from living your own life and come to him. If that is you, you need to do that. Because I cannot with good conscience ignore that, knowing that there is judgment coming one day. And you don't know when it's coming. I don't know when it's coming. (laughs) But it's coming. And I want to say to you, take it seriously. Come and talk with me at the end. Talk with one of the leaders. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you help you process that. If you're a believer here, most of us are, I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what's coming in your life, but I want to just proclaim some truth over you and then you need to respond in faith in your heart. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you are, you are the chosen one. You are the Messiah. You are the Lord over all things. You are, you are the one who created all things. You're the one who sustains all things. You are the one who is ruling over all things right now. Lord, I want to thank you for your perfect life where you came to earth and you lived as a man. You then grew up. Then you died a death that we should have died in our place for our sins. 
You took the punishment we deserved and then you rose victorious from the grave, broke the power of sin, broke the power of death. Thank you, God, for complete and total victory over all things. And Lord God, I thank you that we can experience in that in our life right now. Whatever you're facing now, and you know what the battle is, you know the fight you're in, I don't. I want you to bring that to God now. Bring it to God and remember his victory. I want you to pray for strength in the battle because like we read in Joshua, they had to, they had to fight for it. They had to do something. They didn't sit around. They had to be active. Lord, I want to thank you that whatever we face right now, we know one day there will be an ultimate victory. Even if we don't see it all now, we experience a bit of it, we don't experience a bit of it, we know one day there is a complete victory coming. And Lord, I thank you that there is peace and rest available for your people. Right now, there is peace and rest available to your people. Jesus says, cast your burdens onto me. I care for you. Just cast them. Give them over to Jesus. Whatever you're carrying now, the weight you came in with, the pressures on your mind, work, home, family, relationships, whether it's through hurt that you've caused, hurt that's been caused you, betrayal, I don't know, whatever it is, just give it over to Jesus. And Lord God, I want to thank you that you are a beautiful, loving God, that you love your people, that you show mercy and grace. You pour it out again and again, even when we don't deserve it <laughs> so often. We keep failing, but you just keep pouring out that grace and mercy. Lord, I thank you that your judgment has been poured out on Christ, that my judgment has been poured out on Christ. <laughs> <laughs>